0: February 13th, they're uh, week-long trips. I believe that's a Monday to a Monday, and uh, we have several people who have shown interest in that. So uh, pray about it. Uh, immediately, people always think finances are a problem, and, and uh, not if the Lord wants you to go. So just pray about it and see what the Lord says to you. One more thing this morning before we get into God's Word: uh, Last Sunday uh, was New Year's Day, I believe. Is it? That's right. Yeah, that's true. Trying to get my bearings. And we did a special message giving our vision and mission for the year two thousand and six. If you were not here, uh, I'd recommend that you call the church office and, and get the CD. We'll send it to you free. It's uh, something that you want to listen to. We went over our vision, uh, which is being changed to bring change. And we talked about our mission. Uh, we used three words: feed, fast, and find. feeding on the Word of God. We encourage everybody to be reading through the Bible. Uh, This year, Uh, fasting, we're going to take the last day of every month and uh, have a voluntary fast. And then finding, we want to be inviting folks to church, uh, at least one person a week to our fellowship. We've got some bumper stickers and some uh, bookmarks over in the bookstore. We've got a pin if you want to wear your pin. Uh, These are going over actually pretty well, the Calvary Church. Yeah? It's cool. Yeah, you can tell from where you're sitting. That's an awesome pin. You, know? and so, you guys think this is funny, but I mean, the team, you didn't see it up there, but our team had the coolest yellow de- disaster relief jackets, and man, when they hit the ground, people thought they knew what they were doing, and they did, but uh, they were the envy of every other Calvary Chapel team that has ever been through there, so yeah, we love stuff like that, but it promotes Christ, and it promotes excellence in ministry, and that's what we want to be all about. All right, this morning we want to continue in our study through the Gospel of Luke. We have two weeks left in the Gospel of Luke, Lord willing. This morning our text is Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. Our topic is the road to Emmaus. And the title of our message, Rhodes Scholars. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. Just follow along as I read the text. All two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Have you not known the things which happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. His eyes were opened and knew him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Let's pray together. Wonderful as it is that you revealed yourself to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We want to have a sense, Lord, of you revealing yourself to us here, power in the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We believe, Lord, that as Christians, you indwell us. You've found a home in our heart. And there's a sense in which, though you're not here, Lord, you're much closer to us, much more present with us than you were With these two on the road. And so we ought to be all the more excited than they were. All the more thrilled to see you. In all the scriptures. In all the circumstances of our lives. In the faces and lives of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Lord you uh, pointed out all the places in scripture where you were spoken of. On every page. And I pray that the one thing that we would take from our meeting together today. Is that you are the central focus of our hearts and lives. And if we've been moved by something in the world or even in the Word, Lord, away from thinking about You and how it relates to You, then I pray that You would bring us back to dead center, that our hearts would be just as thrilled, burning as it were, Lord, to know You and to see You and to be with You. We pray in Jesus' name and everyone said Amen. We most often describe our relationship with God as a walk. There are numerous references to walking with God in the New Testament. In the book of Ephesians alone, for example, you're told to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. You're told that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. You're told that you should walk in love. You're told that you should walk as children of the light. And you're told that you should walk suspectly. Those and the many other references to walking with God are wonderful, but there's something behind them that we often overlook. The idea of walking with God involves making progress for sure, but it mostly involves passion. Others sometimes take walks. They don't do it to get somewhere, they do it to be with someone. The progress that they make is not measured in distance, but in devotion. They spend time getting to know one another, deepening in their love. Often they arrive at the same geographical location from where they started, but feeling very different about themselves, having made a romantic progress that puts everything else in an entirely new perspective. God loves to take walks with his children. Right at the beginning of the Bible, in the third chapter of Genesis, God is described as being heard walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. He was looking for Adam and Eve it implies that walking along with them was a regular activity that God looked forward to each day. You can only really understand the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus if you factor in this element of passion. The way Jesus hid his identity from them and then waited until they compelled him to stay with them are romantic elements in the story. Overlook the romance and all you've got is the story of disappointment that the Bible study Jesus gave was not recorded for you. Factor in the romance and you realize that the Bible study is absent for a reason. It's absent because you are to discover it for yourself on a daily basis as you and Jesus walk along together. We want to discover or rediscover the passion of being with the Lord. We'll organize our thoughts around two questions. Number one, is your walk with Jesus restraining you? And number two, is your want for Jesus constraining you? First of all, in verses 13 through 27... Is your walk with Jesus restraining you? Cleopas was one of the travelers. The other may have been his wife. We learn in the Gospel of John that her name was Mary. You find that in John 19:25. Slightly different spelling of the name for Cleopas, but believed to be the same. And there is some evidence, both biblical and traditional, that Cleopas was the brother of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. It's not overly important, but it might have been Uncle Cleo and Aunt Mary that Jesus appeared to on their way home to a The thing that grabs you is that they did not recognize Jesus. Their eyes were restrained means that somehow spiritually they were prevented from recognizing that it was the risen Lord walking and talking with them. Scholars suggest a multitude of reasons why their eyes were restrained. For me, it comes down to these two reasons. Number one. Jesus has a flair for romantic drama. Take this out of the story, and there is no story. If they recognize Jesus immediately, there's no walk, there's no talk, there's no Bible study, there's no episode at the table. It's a flair for romantic drama. And number two, it was important that they first see Jesus in the scriptures before they saw him in person. Jesus takes them through the scriptures and their hearts begin to burn in a sense that they know that there's something there about their Lord. And then and only then do they see the Lord revealed. It's a reminder to us that we are always to base things on the written word of God rather than on our own experiences as wonderful and as necessary as they may be. We're going to use their seven-mile walk to compare our own daily walk with the Lord. And so let's read again, beginning in verse 13. It says, Now behold, two of them traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. This is the evening of the Sunday on which Jesus from the dead. And they talked together all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. They talked together, they conversed, and they reasoned. Three basic things, let's just mention them in passing. First of all, they talked together, and that implies that you have fellowship with other believers. Uh, your walk with the Lord is enhanced as you have fellowship with other believers. Secondly, they conversed. that indicates a mutual activity. It speaks of ministering one to another with the abilities and gifts that God has granted. And so you're in fellowship with other believers and then you converse with them. You share with them. And sometimes that is in practical ways. But as David mentioned, a lot of times just our talking with one another is a tremendous encouragement. Uh, and we should think about that. You know, the Bible says that we should speak as the oracles of God that we should let no corrupt communication proceed out of our mouths, but only that which is good to edify. Now, I'm not saying we can't joke around and have a good time. Obviously, I would never say that. But uh, we need to be cognizant of the fact, aware of the fact that our words can, can build up or they can tear down. And so we're in fellowship. We're conversing with one another to build one another up and minister to one another. And this word reasoned, It speaks to me of remaining grounded in the scriptures as our source of information about the Lord. They were reasoning about things that they remembered from scripture and had heard and trying to put it all together. And so. You know, there's a lot of stuff out in the world. There's a lot of garbage out there. There's a, a lot of stuff to sort through. We want to make sure when we talk to one another to encourage one another. We're doing it on the solid basis of the word of God because we know that that's true. I, I'm, I, I'm not at all sure about 90% of the things that the world is coming up with. And they're always changing their mind as that and the other thing. But when I read something in God's word, I know I can trust it. Uh, it's more than just stood the test of time. Uh, It's beyond time and space and anything I can imagine. It's the Word of God uh, given to us by inspiration so that we can have something to really share with someone else. Now, Jesus was certainly the topic of their conversation and reasoning from Scripture as they talked together. But He was missing from their walk until He joined Himself to them. And even then, they didn't recognize Him. And this is all a picture for us as we look at our own walk. Conversing, reasoning for sure about Jesus, but missing from our walk. And then even after he joins himself, we still don't recognize him. It's to show us that we can be walking along as believers in fellowship, ministering to one another, basing everything on God's word, but still missing the central person, still be missing Jesus. And so verse 17, he said to them. What are you guys talking about, basically, what he says? What kind of conversation is this? You're walking along and you're sad. And then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Have you not known the things which happened there in these days? Ask yourself this question. As you walk with the Lord, are you sad? Honest believers will sometimes answer yes. Maybe you're not sad today. Maybe you're not sad all the time. When you're sad... You must believe that the Lord is right there with you. Your circumstances may make it hard for you to recognize Him, but He is most assuredly there. I think one of the where we fail the most, I think, as believers, is that we don't we don't have this sense of the presence of God in our lives. And, and there are many, many things that that seek to cancel that out discouragement, despair, despondency, the world, the flesh, the devil. All of these things are working to where we feel like God has abandoned us. And we read in Psalms, David had this feeling, you know, uh, about being forsaken and left by the Lord. And yet here is the story. Here are these two despairing disciples. Think of all the places that Jesus could have been in his post-resurrection, appearing to different people at the different times. And he sees these two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, who are just sad and discouraged. And he knows that in a few hours they're going to hear uh, testimony that, that, they, that he actually is risen from the dead. But he's so concerned about them that he, he goes to them and he begins to walk with them and, and, and he draws near to them. And even though they don't recognize him at first, he is with them, walking with them, seeking to minister to them and to draw out from them uh, these things. And so whenever you find yourself in these kinds of sad, discouraging situations... You can be absolutely certain that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. You see him, you don't sense him maybe. There's something going on, but he's right there and you need to hold on to that. Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? So they said to him, well, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found just as the women had said, but him they did not see. They had the word of God and they had eyewitness testimony that Jesus had risen from the dead. The word of God is summarized in their reference to the third day since these things have happened. More than once the Lord had told his followers that he would be condemned to death and crucified, but that he would be raised the third day. And then they had the witness of angels, of the women at the tomb, and at least two of the apostles who ran to the tomb to see for themselves Peter and John. Still, they did not believe. Perhaps they were restrained in seeing Jesus of their expectations of who he was and what they wanted him to do. They described him as a prophet mighty in deed and word and they expected him to politically redeem Israel out of the control of the Romans. Now as great as all that would be this is a really low view of who Jesus was and what he came to accomplish. He was not another prophet. He was the sinless son of God and he didn't come to lead a political upheaval but to redeem the lost souls of men and women all over the world from every nation, tribe, tongue, and family. A lot of times people just have a low view of Jesus. They think it's it's an elevated view, but it's a very low view. For the past decade at least, there's been a movement within American Christianity called we call it the health and wealth movement. It's a teaching that believers should always be perfectly healthy. And that you can have as much wealth as you want in this world. After you're a king's kid, king and he wants you to have everything that this world has to offer. And as appealing as that sounds from a capitalistic standpoint. And as much as I would love to be healthy and healthy. It's a very low view of who Jesus is and what he really wants to do. Because if that comes true in my life. If I'm healthy my whole life. And if I'm as wealthy as I want to be. I could get to the end of my life and be nothing more than a spoiled brat. Thinking that I deserve everything that the Lord has done for me. Or that I've actually myself even. And no one likes spoiled people. No one likes spoiled children. And the only thing worse than a spoiled child is a spoiled adult. And it's a very low view of Jesus because that's not at all the work that Jesus wants to do. You know, it would be nothing for Jesus to give you perfect health. It would be nothing for him to give you, uh, to make you win the lottery every day. I mean, he could, he could, that's nothing. But that's not what he's about. What he's about is conforming you, changing you from the inside more and more each day to be the person you were created to be. And that, that's a very different work, and it takes. A lifetime It takes your lifetime and all of God's resources brought to bear against our disobedience, with our obedience, all of these things working together. It's a powerful work. It's a wonderful work because, you know what? I can wait for health and wealth until I get to heaven. I mean, there isn't a house in Hanford that's going to compare to my mansion in heaven. I mean, right now, uh, there's, take all the houses on the home tour and own them all. And none of them can even begin to compare with just the streets of heaven, the gates of heaven. Uh, if there's trash cans in heaven, they, you know, maybe some of these houses will be the trash cans in heaven. I don't know, you know. But uh, and so we can wait. We're gonna have perfect bodies, not just not, not just from a health point of view, but we won't have any sin, no sin principle, no flesh in that sense. And so, I mean, I can wait for that. Whatever God has for me is much better than what I can have. But He's working on me now to get me to that place. And it's a very low view of Jesus sometimes that hinders us, that restrains us. things. So circumstances happen. Things happen in our lives. And almost always we have to take a step back and say, why might these things be happening? Not in the sense of of trying to necessarily figure them out, but in, in the sense of what is God able to teach me? What is the lesson here? How is God working in my life? Or just the sense that, hey, God is working in my life. I've got this boss I don't like, I've got these employees I don't like. I don't like my fellow students. I, I don't like these people or this is really tough over here or whatever's happening. God has allowed this in my life for a reason and a purpose. I don't even want to begin to compare myself to anybody else. What is it I am supposed to bring to bear here? What can I learn from this? How does this Affect my character. How does it make me more like Jesus Christ? And we forget that very rapidly because we have a low view of what Jesus is actually doing in our lives. In verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Uncle Cleopas and Aunt Mary believed a lot. But they did not believe all that the prophets had spoken. They knew their scriptures, but they viewed the Bible through their own cultural and intellectual filters. They grew up believing in a conquering Messiah who would deliver them from their national enemies and reestablish Israel as an earthly kingdom. In other words, they believed all of the glory parts of the Old Testament. They could recognize everywhere the Messiah was spoken of restoring the kingdom of God to Israel. But they didn't understand, they ignored, and they set aside all of the suffering parts about the Messiah. Because it didn't fit into their thinking. A modern, Part of a modern example of this, for many centuries... The church on earth, Christians, taught that Israel, God's done with them. There's no nation of Israel. There's a few Jews scattered around the world. But there's no nation of Israel. And guess what, guys? There's never going to be one. And so they began to interpret and read the Bible as if there was no real Israel anymore, no physical Israel to worry about, and no contact with the land. And a lot of theology is based on this. A lot of what people believe uh, in various areas is based on this idea that the church is now the new Israel and it's some kind of spiritual thing. Man, were they surprised when in May 14th of 1940, Israel was born as a nation again. And, And you start to think, ooh, we missed something. Why? Well, quite honestly, it would have been hard to understand that given the facts of the world. But there were Bible commentators who stuck to that. H J. Ironside, for example, way before 1948 kept saying, hey, you keep your eyes in the Middle East. Israel's going to be a nation again. They laughed at him. They thought he was an idiot. And so the, the thing is, we, you know, we, we read the newspapers. We study history. We get degrees. You know, we're, we're ra- rational and intelligent people. And then we take all of that and we put it on the Scriptures and we say, oh, well, this is how this is to be interpreted. We're interpreting it the way we see it, as American Christians or as European Christians or whatever we might be. It's through our culture uh, so often, and we need to just be careful not to do that. Just take the Word of God at face value. If something you don't understand, guess what? You will one day. And, and if God says something, man, let's just believe it. We need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the Word of God in ways that overcome any prejudice that we might have and any preconceptions. Verse 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It was the greatest Bible study ever delivered. I mean, how could you get any better than this? Jesus talking about Jesus from the word of God. I mean, this is, this is great stuff. He undoubtedly told them that he was there in Genesis creating the universe. That he was the promised seed of the woman in the Garden of Eden who would crush the serpent's head but be bruised in the process. That when Abraham was instructed to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah, it was a type of God the Father sacrificing his only begotten son, Jesus, on the cross at the exact same spot that the Passover lambs that were slain in Egypt and for centuries afterward were typical of himself as the Lamb of God who would come and take away the sins of the world. He may have described how each of the sacrifices in the tabernacle represented him. Or how each piece of furniture in the tabernacle pointed to him. Jesus probably reminded them that the words he spoke from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Were a quote from Psalm 22. Which perfectly predicted his death by crucifixion over 400 years before it occurred. He undoubtedly took them through Isaiah chapter 53. And it's predictions of the suffering of the Savior. And we could go on and on and on. Now, I, too, wish we had the text of this study. It would be the only book you really needed. I mean, you get rid of all your other library and just have this. But what I find fascinating is this. If you regularly attend a Bible-teaching church, you do hear this study. And it's as if Jesus himself is talking to you as it is God, the Holy Spirit within you, who is teaching you. I can remember, as I close my eyes here and visualize it, I can actually remember... The day that Pam and I were at Calvary Chapel of Lake Arrowhead and Don McClure, our pastor, explained the story of Abraham and Isaac. You know, here I was a young believer, a new believer, and, and quite honestly, I, I thought, hey, this is a little weird. What's Abraham been smoking? I mean, what's going on there in that territory, you know? And, and maybe he got to hold us some bad tea or something, and he, he's going to go sacrifice his son. I thought we didn't believe in human sacrifice. And it looks pretty serious for a while, you know, the first time you're reading that story and then then all of a sudden God stays his hand and there's a ram caught in the thickets and and you think, wow, good, you know. OK, so what are you going to say about this creature? And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit begins to speak to you and through that. And like, oh, oh, whoa, whoa, minute. What if Abraham is a type of God, the father? And what if. What if Isaac is a type of Jesus Christ his only begotten son and what if this whole sacrifice thing is a picture of how one day God will sacrifice Jesus Christ on the cross and then at the end when they tell you it's the same place that it happened you you're you know if you were hostile you'd go crazy. I mean, you just want to shout glory. And I mean, it's, it's the most tremendous thing in the world. This is the kind of Bible study that these guys had. And it's the kind of Bible study you get all the time throughout your life if you're going to any kind of a decent church. And so we don't need this Bible study. we get it. Now, I want to note two things about the Lord's approach to Bible study. Very important. First of all, it was systematic. He went through the scriptures. Look, there's a lot of different ways to teach. And we do them here. We have topical Bible studies and doctrinal studies. And, you know, last week we took a break and we uh, taught on one verse to talk about our vision and mission for 2006. So I understand that. But week by week, year by year, you need to have a systematic study of the Bible where you pick a book, start at the beginning, go all the way through it, and finish at the end. It's what Jesus did. It's really the only way to grow in the Word of God. But second, and maybe even more important than that, Jesus focused his study on finding himself in every story, in every page. It's all too possible to go through the Bible systematically, to be solid in our Bible study, but miss seeing Jesus as He is revealed to us. It's not that we miss some of the types or pictures of Jesus. It's that we are studying the Scriptures as scholars first and as lovers second or not at all. Think of it this way. You're in love. Let's say you're in love and you read a love note beloved and it comes back to you With spell check, (laughs) red marks, parsed sentences—you know, you misspelled love here. It's—it's not L-U-V, you know, and stuff like and all this. What's with this happy face? And I I don't understand this. Well, you wouldn't do that. Well, maybe you would, and that's why you're not married. But (laughs) so that's the idea. So here's the—you've got a love letter, And, and and you don't care if it follows. You know the grammar you're not you're not parsing it you're you're not really worried about that aspect of it. I'm not saying we shouldn't be scholarly in our approach to Bible study., yeah, you know I wouldn't say that. you just need to come into my office and see all the books. I love to read, not a scholar. Uh, there's no sense in which I could ever be accused of being a scholar, and I don't think of myself as a scholar. I don't think of most scholars as scholars but but so but there's one study deep study. You know, words, verbs, you know, the whole thing, that's all very necessary. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of times we're looking at the Bible only as scholars, only with scholarship in mind. And when the Lord is coming to us and giving us this love letter, this road to Emmaus. Hey, the road to Emmaus. I read commentaries this week about why did Jesus determine to go further? And there's there's whole commentaries written on why that isn't a deception. And trying to prove that the Lord wasn't being deceptive and acting like He was going to go farther, and and you know because people accuse Him of of some kind of duplicity, and I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Any lover would understand that. Uh, I remember I've told you this story before, but it's it's my story. When Pam and I were first dating, and I lived in San Bernardino, he was down in Santa Ana, and every night after work, I'd drive down there to see her and. 10 o'clock, I better be going. You know, I've got to work tomorrow. Oh, I'll stay a little bit longer. Okay, you know, 11 o'clock, you know, I really should get going. You know, well, you know, why don't you just stay a little bit longer, you know, and stuff. And her mom would go to bed. And then 12 o'clock, you know, really, i got to get home, honey. You know, well, you know, just give a few more minutes. You know. 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning, I'd be driving home, you know. I remember, you know, with all the windows down in winter, trying to stay awake. <laughs> and I'd get home and, and just get dressed and go back to work and then do the same thing the next night until I ended up in the hospital. I, I I collapsed with exhaustion. Had my first and only experience with Valium. <laughs> I understand, but uh, don't touch it. But anyway, uh, and, and no, literally I was suffering from physical exhaustion because, because it was, it was, oh, you know. And so, you know, no, you don't look at that and say, well, is simplicity here? Are you being deceptive? What are you saying? You're going to leave, but not you're leaving. I mean, and so we have to approach this. We have to approach this from the point of view of romance. And, and I think, as I said, whole systems of Bible doctrine exist that tune the nature and character of God. They're based on logic rather than love. Episodes like the two on the road to Emmaus should snap us back to reality that our Lord is in love with us. Two disciples walking along with Jesus, but they were restrained from seeing him. Am I being restrained? Are you being restrained? It's an important question to ask. Our expectation of them, our culture, our prejudices, our preconceptions, all of these and more can restrain us from seeing the Lord. His solution is to reinvigorate our systematic Bible study so that we are looking for him on every page. And you'll know that you've been reinvigorated when, instead of being restrained, you begin to constrain him. Now, I know it's a little bit late this morning. Let me just tell you what I would have said if I had the time. Actually, this section is much shorter. Is your want for Jesus constraining him? Remember, this mantic story. Lovers understand what happened next. Jesus would have gone on further, but the two constrained him to stay. They drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. In a moment, we're going to read that their hearts were burning within them as Jesus talked on the road. Having not seen him, really, they loved him, kindled their love, and thus they constrained him to remain with them. Jesus said that he would never leave you or forsake you, and I talked about that earlier. But he must be constrained if you are to experience his presence. There are many metaphors to talk about our relationship with God One of the most popular in the New Testament is that he is your bridegroom and you are his bride. If you eliminate a passionate element, your walk will become stale. He remains with you, but you are not realizing it. And eventually he will say something to you like, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Verse 30. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Their eyes were open and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. This, by the way, was not communion. They were simply sharing a meal. There was something about the way Jesus handled the bread, blessing it and breaking it that was unmistakable. It's like that with lovers. Certain very common behaviors are done in ways that for some reason become endearing. Do you remember this line in the Beatles song? Something in the way she moves attracts me like no other lover. And then the song goes on to describe other common activities that become uncommon because they're done by the person that you love. And you know what? It's hard to... I understand why we want to be more scholarly. It's easier to be scholarly than to talk about romance. What does that mean? Something in the way she moves. (laughs) What... No one understands that. You can't dissect that. You can't tear that apart. That's some kind of a, uh, an emotional blurting out of, you know, and, and it's just there's something about you. I just I, I don't know what it is. I love you. And it, the way you hold your head, the way you do this, the way you do that, you know, and, and even if someone else does the exact same thing, it's meaningless. It's purposeless. It, it's nothing. And it's so hard to describe. And so we always fall on the side of scholarship. But if we fall too hard on that side, we lose something very precious. And the Lord has to come and remind us. Jesus vanished from their sight. They would see him again. But better than seeing him, he would ascend into heaven and send the Holy Spirit to live within them and be among them. He would be more present with them than ever before. Verse 32, and they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened the scripture to us? So they rose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. They didn't finish the meal. They didn't clean up after themselves. It's difficult and extremely dangerous to travel so great a distance after dark. All I can say is that love makes you do the strangest things. You get out of your element. Your habits change. uh, Your life is a mess. And you do things that you would have never done before. Verse thirty three, so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Before Cleopa and Mary could even give their report, the other disciples lured out encounters of their own. Would to God that it could be that way among us that Not not just that we're interrupting each other, but we're interrupting each other to talk about Jesus and what Jesus has done in our lives. All of them talked only about Jesus. It was a sure sign of their love for him. All of this happened because they constrained Jesus to stay with them. He would have gone on further. He wasn't play acting. Jesus is like that. If if. If they wanted him to stay, he's willing to stay and reveal himself in a deeper way. But if they don't want him to stay, he's willing to walk on. The church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation. Man, what a great church. But finally, Jesus says, guys, listen, you're doing all this stuff, but you've left your first love. You're not constraining me to be with you. And now it's gotten so bad, I have to warn you. That if you don't turn and, and and fall in love with me again, you're not even going to have a testimony because uh, it, it's my presence that you really need. And so the question comes to me, am I constraining Jesus? Are you constraining him? It's another important question we should ask of ourselves. And it's another difficult question because it's, it's hard to grab a hold of, isn't it? I mean, I can say, well, yes, Lord, I'm reading the Bible through this year. I'm behind this morning, but I am. I'm, I'm going to get caught up, you know. And, and I, I'm doing this, and I have my devotions, and I went to church. And I, Lord, I'm doing all of these things. What do you even mean, Lord? Am I constraining you? It, like get a verse or or a thought, and you think, hey, what what does that mean? And, and 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 do you have to just do you have to seek the Lord to know what it means? Do you say, Lord, I, I'm just, I can't even rest until I know what you're trying to tell me. Lord, I know there's something here. Noah found grace in the eyes. Of, what is this, Lord? What, what are you doing? I have to know. You can tell me in ten minutes. You can tell me in ten years. But I have to know. I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to grab a hold of this, Lord. I, you have to explain this to me. And in various other areas of your life. And, and it's something that you only understand when you're really in love. And so Jesus, he does. He says, hey, remember. Remember that first love. Repent and do the first It's something we always need to come back to as leavers. It's serious. The Lord, he wants to be constrained. We can quit being restrained in our walk with him and be set free to just talk about him, walk with him, reason from scripture, all the things that we really want to do. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You so much for these two on the road to Emmaus. Uh, Lord, not at all a doctrinal study. Uh, Many probably thought it could have been left out of the Word of God, but not the Holy Spirit inspiring Luke. Luke saw something in it that was so precious, so moving, so meaningful. And I pray that, Lord, as we have just scratched the surface of it, it would come so to our hearts and that we would... Want to be so in love with you, Lord. Uh, And, and Lord, knowing that your love is faithful and true and pure and honest. Uh, And, Lord, not to put a burden on anyone. But just to want to be refreshed. Simple things of the truth of the word of God. And So do these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, some of the guys will be here to pray with you after service. One night, uh, you can stand. Wednesday night, 7 o'clock over in the Fellowship Hall. We'll be showing photos, maybe some video, uh, giving testimonies of the trip, and uh, you'll want to be there for that. God bless you.
1: You pray head. Scars into your hands and feet. They put a crown upon your head. Scars into your hands and feet. I love everything about you. I love everything about all you've done for me. All you've done for me. So I will live my life for you. So I will live my life. Jesus, you have set me free. Jesus, you have set me free. I love everything about you. And I love everything about you. Come, Jesus,